The Old Testament uh, lesson this morning is our select verses from Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19. It's a little bit of a long passage, just bear with me. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into his tent or into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three says of flying flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a, a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Moving on to verse 16. Then the men sat out there, uh, sat, set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed from him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for, uh, for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have, taken, uh, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I, find, if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have, taken, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found here. He are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not do it. Then he said, 
Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his, went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Verse 19, or chapter 19, verses 27 through uh, 29 here. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The word of the Lord. Thanks to our readers. I know those Old Testament passages are not for the for the faint of heart. They are they're long. They can be quite the workout for the for the mouth. So thank you for for doing that. Um, one Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning on this brisk fall morning. I know in particular, it has been such a joy each morning to come and to see children and adults uh, working together and, and studying together on the lawn. Um, we've talked a lot about the importance of, of intergenerational, multi-generational ministry, and it's, it's been very encouraging uh, to see those things come together uh, here at the church. But as always, we know that it's the Word of God that, that calls us, that, that brings together people of, of all ages, that, that collects us, um, and that crafts us into the people that God wishes us to become. So towards that end, before we look at this, at this passage, let us come together before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for this chance to come together. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for the truth that it tells us, Father, and we thank you for the promise that it gives us, the promise that you have given to your people, the promise that you have used to form your people, and the promise that you have fulfilled in the name of your Son, uh, that you fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, literature professor Jeffrey Bilbro, he examines a strange phenomenon in our modern age. He points out that more and more news companies and, and organizations are offering trips wherein readers and listeners can now vacation with, with other readers and listeners. Uh, for instance, he highlights one particular trip that will bring together fans of, of one particular news outlet and let them vacation together on an 11-day cruise around New Zealand. And it's here that, that Bilbro asks an interesting question. He says, why would people seek out such community? Why would they want to vacation with strangers who share an affinity for the same news source rather than members of their family or members of their local community? Bilbro points to the new role that the public sphere plays in the modern world. 
it's, it's not only a place of exchange of issues at, at all levels, be they domestic, national, international, but a place where we start to find our community. They've become places of belonging. He points out, quote, we can identify ourselves by the media we consume. Are you a Fox News watcher, an NPR listener, a New Yorker reader? He points out that such media have become markers of our identity, of who we are and who we would want others to consider us to be. However, the, the focus of these communities, if we can call them that, is actually something that, if we're not careful, can end up tearing us apart. These identities can be quite divisive. It's a good thing to hold political positions and to engage in public issues, but the media news cycles can seek to make our political or social positions our primary identities. And when that happens, these identities seek to set us against the social other, with those people who do not share our particular opinions. We are brought together with, with others, and, and often what brings us together is scorn for the other party, for the other platform, for the other position. In fact, if, if we lost this anger, this rage of the other, then these media outlets would actually command much less of our attention. They have a financial interest in keeping us outraged, keeping us angry, keeping us afraid. They want to make you furious and fearful because it's good for business. Toward that end, the, the recently deceased Polish philosopher and sociologist Zygmunt Bauman, he warns us against groups that become swarms. He says, swarms tend to replace groups. Swarms assemble, disperse, and come together again from one occasion to another, each time guided by different, invariably shifting relevancies and attached by changing and moving targets. Bilbro points out that this is exactly what often happens with online mobs. As they come together, uh, whatever the ideological orientation, to demand blood from some public figure or well-known personality. They come together, they swarm, they destroy, and then they depart. And sadly, this can be what constitutes much of modern community. We come together in swarms. And so even if we take that New Zealand cruise, odds are we'll spend much more time swiping our phones than shaking hands. And so what we need is something other than news media and social media upon which to build our actual embodied local communities. We need something that doesn't get traction by making us furious and fearful of the other. We need something that fosters actual community and not just swarms. And as, as I will argue, the present passage offers us just that. In fact, I would argue that it actually offers us the very best foundation for community. It offers us a community constituted 
by a people of welcome and a people of mercy. And, and I want to look at both of those in turn. And I want to start with a people of welcome. So if we, if we look at this passage, it begins by three men who appear to Abraham. And it's fascinating. Right away, Abraham responds by offering them the utmost hospitality. While Abraham says he's only going to offer them a morsel of bread, he actually gives them milk and curds and even the fattened calf. And it's important to note that this is not your average ancient Near Eastern meal. Meat was a luxury, but especially the fattened calf, which was the highest meat delicacy. What Abraham does here is offer exorbitant hospitality to these strangers. And we see a bit of his disposition as well as this person of high status comes and bows before the ground to these three strangers. Abraham is hospitable. He is welcoming to an extravagant degree. He receives these persons not with reserve, but with absolute revelry. And it's important to ask, what is Abraham's expressed reason for doing this? Well, Genesis 18.5 tells us, Abraham says, since you have come to your servant. Since you have come to your servant. Abraham offers such hospitality for no other reason than because you are here. Their presence alone is sufficient for this hospitality. John Calvin, commentating on this passage, points out that this is a means by which Abraham understands the events of his life. He understands them under the rubric of God's plan, under the rubric of divine orchestration. Because you have come becomes a kind of shorthand for saying, because God has willed to bring us together at this moment in this place. As Calvin writes, Abraham refers it to the providence of God that they had come so conveniently to a place where they might refresh themselves a little while till the heat of the sun should abate. But Calvin pushes this further. He says what's true of this particular encounter in Abraham's life just is true of each and every encounter in our very own lives. As Calvin continues, quote, Abraham's example, I'm sorry, let us, after Abraham's example, conclude that whenever our brethren who need our help meet us, they are sent to us by God. Because you have come to your servant becomes a key to understanding each and every interaction with our neighbor. We are always and only welcoming persons who have been sent to us by God himself. Think about it. How differently would you treat a person if you received a kind of direct revelation of God that such and such a person is coming to you at such and such a time, at such and such a place, and you must receive them as a representative of God, someone that God has sent to you. But Calvin tells us that this is true of each and every encounter. Our sovereign God orchestrates our each and every interaction. Each person we meet is actually sent to us by God. 
How do we know this person has been sent to us by God? By the mere fact that we are meeting them. Because they have come to your servant. So as a church, let us work to receive each visitor who comes here as someone who has been personally sent here by God. If you are a visitor and that seems overwhelming and completely over the top, well, that's just how big our view of God is. Nothing at all escapes God's orchestration. And so you are here as much as it might seem otherwise because God himself has sent you here. This is why, as a visitor, no matter who you are, you should feel more warmly welcomed and received here than anywhere else. No other community has a better reason for offering you the proverbial fattened calf. We believe that God has sent you to us, and please do forgive us for any way that we have failed to welcome you accordingly. Because you have come to your servant. Who has God sent to you? Just as you would treat the representative of some great public figure, God calls you to welcome and to receive each neighbor that he has sent to you. And again, what greater foundation could we ever find for our local and embodied community? It's not a community based upon a political or a particular political or ideological affinity. It's a community based upon divine commissioning, based on divine sending. And one day, we will all stand before the Lord. And on that day, he may ask us, how did you receive, how did you welcome those who I sent you? And perhaps we will say, Lord, who did you send us? And what else can he say but who did I not send you? This is the lesson we learn from Abraham. All the same in, in Abraham's situation, we, we do find a special case because these visitors are not only visitors sent by God, but, these, but this visitor is God. And we passed over the part of, of the passage where the identity of God is revealed. We'll, we'll look at that later when we examine the birth of, of Isaac. But we do find that somehow in the visitation of these three men, God himself has appeared to Abraham in human form and has engaged Abraham in personal dialogue. And it's here that we see what has enabled Abraham to welcome strangers to welcome neighbors so, so generously. Look at what the Lord says to Abraham in Genesis 18, 17 through 19. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. We find that God has chosen Abraham. God has received Abraham. God has welcomed Abraham. God has given Abraham a promise. 
And we find that Abraham and his household and all of his offspring have become God's people and that they have come to a right standing with God. They have been made righteous by faith in that promise. Uh, Again, we looked at that last week. That's the very condition signified and sealed in circumcision. Abraham has been welcomed, so he himself is able to welcome. Abraham's whole life is a story of being lovingly welcomed for no reason other than the love of God. This is what animates his welcoming of others. God has welcomed Abraham, and so Abraham is, welcome, uh, is to welcome any and all neighbors. Abraham has been blessed to be a blessing, and this is the righteousness to which Abraham and his household are called. Righteous conduct just is the living out of our relationship with God. It is to welcome as one who has received the greatest of all welcomes. It is to serve as one who has received the greatest of all services. It is to show mercy as one who has been shown the greatest of all mercy. But, but even here, we find that Abraham still has much to learn, both about this mercy and about this righteousness. And this brings us to our second and final point, a people of mercy. If we look at the second part of the passage, Abraham enters into a dialogue with God. A dialogue about how the city of Sodom might be spared from divine wrath, how this city might be saved from destruction. But we have to ask ourselves uh, an initial question, how is it that we are meant to understand this dialogue? Well, to begin with, one perspective must be absolutely avoided. For instance, one biblical scholar claims that what the text teaches us is, quote, the possibility that people can argue with God and win. This, however, must be fully and completely rejected. That will actually lead us to the opposite conclusion of what the text itself actually presents. And if that's the case, Abraham is more merciful than God. Throughout this dialogue, we see Abraham asking questions to God, moving down from a criterion of 50 righteous persons to a criterion of 10 righteous persons. If only 10 righteous persons are in the city, then the city will still be saved. But what is happening here? Is Abraham finding or forcing the mercy of God? Is he acquiring or is he arguing or is he exploring? Does he win an argument or acquire understanding? Does he change God's mind or more deeply plumb God's heart? As Old Testament scholar John Goldengay writes, there is no indication that God had not thought of the possibility Abraham raises or that God needs persuading. Abraham is not the professor. He is the pupil. He's not the lecturer. He's the learner. He's not teaching God. Abraham is being taught. As theologian Kevin Van Hooser writes of this exchange, for the dialogue itself is instructive. Abraham learns that Yahweh is far more merciful 
than Abraham imagines. Indeed, the dialogue taken as a whole is a divine education, an instance of God's edifying discourse, thanks to which Abraham and we learn something of the expanse of God's mercy. Abraham is not more merciful than God. If, if, if Abraham is more merciful than God, then we are all without hope. Even the most kind, the most welcoming human heart that you now encounter is a million times harder than the gracious heart of God. Abraham's mercy runs out. God's does not. So then what is happening here in this dialogue? Abraham is boldly broaching just how merciful our God actually is. And what is Abraham learning? Well, he's learning an important theological point, that the righteous can stand in the place of the unrighteous. Eventually, we come to the point where we find that 10 righteous persons would be sufficient to save the city. And it's here that Abraham stops. It's here that Abraham asks no more questions. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this stopping mean? I do not believe it indicates the limits of God's mercy. Instead, I believe it indicates the limits of Abraham's own conception of God's mercy. How merciful Abraham thinks God can be. Surely, Abraham thinks, a city cannot be saved for the sake of less than 10 righteous people. Mercy, especially the mercy of God, who sees all of our wrongdoing, that mercy must have its limits. Yet, importantly and ironically, Abraham also makes an assumption in the opposite direction. Just as mercy must have its limits, so too must justice and righteousness. For how righteous, how just can any of us actually be? We may strive to love our neighbor in a million different ways, but none of us serves and loves our neighbor perfectly. We may strive to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we never 100% achieve this goal. We utter harsh words, we rage during traffic jams, we intentionally avoid eye contact with those who ask us for help, we buy another coat that we will never wear or another book that we will never read, while our neighbor shivers in the cold or finds themselves cut off from important avenues of education. None of us is perfectly righteous, none of us is perfectly just. Yet Abraham assumes that we can be righteous enough to divert divine wrath. Or at least a group of, of ten together in one city would be enough, would be sufficient to do so. So Abraham is thinking that something less than perfect righteousness would be sufficient, would be enough. So we have here a kind of double irony on Abraham's part. He has both a shrunken view of mercy and a shrunken view of righteousness. He underestimates God's mercy, and he overestimates our righteousness. 
his view of both mercy and of righteousness are much, much too small. Fair enough, we might say, then what exactly is God looking for then? What would it take to spare a city? Well, we have to remember that that Scripture itself, all of it, the whole canon, the entire Bible, is a unified witness to the saving work of God. And in other parts in Scripture, we find another city that, unlike Sodom, is, is not destroyed. We find a city saved from divine wrath. We find the city of of Nineveh. And there's a classic rule of of reading the Bible and the church tradition, the notion that Scripture interprets Scripture. During the Reformation, this was known as the analogy of, of faith. And as we look at Sodom and Nineveh, we we do well to follow the lead of that principle. Because somehow, someway, the city of Nineveh had the righteousness needed to turn away the wrath of God. But what exactly did this righteousness look like? The prophet Jonah comes to Nineveh. He proclaims destruction. The whole city responds, and we find the the king in Jonah 3 putting out the following decree. He commands, quote, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Somehow, the righteousness needed to turn away divine wrath was the righteousness of repentance. The people of Nineveh acknowledged their sin, they acknowledged their wrongdoing, they acknowledged their evil, and they threw themselves upon the mercy of God. They admitted that the only way that they could be saved from divine wrath was if this God was a God of of mercy. They realized that mercy was their only hope. All they could say was, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Abraham might not know the depth of God's mercy, but the people of Nineveh don't even know if God is merciful at all. But they do know that if they are saved, then his mercy must be unfathomable. His mercy must be limitless. His mercy must be without measure. If Nineveh is saved, then they know that God's mercy is greater than we could ever imagine. And so this raises an important question. How can repentance be a source of of righteousness? Well, to, to answer that question, we have to look at one more instance where God chose not to destroy a city. Again, the scripture interprets scripture. We follow the analogy of faith. And what do we learn if we take this road even further? Well, it takes us to Luke chapter 9. And and in this chapter, we find Jesus and the disciples coming to a Samaritan village. And they're rejected. They're not received by the village because Jesus and his disciples are going. They're making their way to Jerusalem. And the Samaritan village doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So in response, the disciples James and John offer up a a startling 
a frightening question. They ask, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And surely with this question, the biblical account of of Sodom is operating in the background. We see appeal here to the same imagery of fire and of smoke. But what does Jesus do? Well, we find a, a poignant and terse response. We find in 955, but he turned and rebuked them. He turned and he rebuked them. So then why would Jesus rebuke them for this question? Well, the question assumes that the disciples themselves are righteous enough to escape the judgment of God. But these town people in Samaria are not. The disciples do not warrant divine judgment, but but somehow these townspeople do. But if they truly understood Jesus' mission, they would ask a different question. The right question isn't, Lord, will you bring down fire and consume them? But rather, why haven't you brought down fire and consumed me? A failure to ask this fundamental question is what earns James and John the rebuke of Jesus. This question then should push us even further into the mercy of God, further than Abraham himself dared to ask. Again, Abraham stopped at the possibility of 10 righteous persons saving the city. However, we must ask an even bolder question. We must come before God and we must say, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Will you destroy the city for the sake of one righteous that is found there? This, finally, is the right question. This is the question that probes the depths of God's mercy. But it also scales the heights of God's righteousness. For the answer is yes. For the sake of one, I will save the city. For the sake of one, I will save you. And this is not the righteousness of social media or news media. That is much too low a view of justice. That's a view of justice that we see in the disciples, where some deserve destruction and others do not. God's view of justice and righteousness is so high that all of us fall short. All of us deserve that destruction. All except one. For if one is to save others by righteousness, then this one must be fully righteous. He must be one who has loved both God and neighbor perfectly in word and thought and deed. And this one is Jesus Christ, the very one who rebuked James and John. And to assume that the Samaritan village deserves to be consumed by fire instead of the disciples just is to undercut Jesus' whole mission. 
like both Abraham and the Ninevites, we must know that the only hope for any of us is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Jesus rebukes James and John for thinking otherwise. But if the righteous one, if Jesus Christ can save us from divine wrath, where then is the justice of God? What about the punishment? What about the accountability for all of our cruel and selfish actions? To be sure, it's, it's proper that we face temporal consequence, consequences for the wrong things that we've done. But here we are talking about the judgment of God himself. We're talking about divine wrath. The people of Sodom experienced this. However, the Ninevites did not. So then here's the question. If, if such a city like Nineveh can be saved, is God truly just? He might be merciful. He spared them. He gave, him his, them, uh, he gave them his mercy. But what about his justice? As Abraham asks, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so we have to ask, how can God be both merciful and just? Because for those who have thrown themselves upon the mercy of God, he himself has taken the punishment that they deserve. James and John ask, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and to consume this city? Yet the answer of the cross is Jesus saying, I have already told fire to come down from heaven to consume me. This is why we, like the Ninevites, can throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And this is why we can ask the one question that Abraham dared not to ask. Lord, would you spare the city for the sake of one righteous? And this is because Christ himself has called divine wrath upon himself. He experienced the same destruction as did the city of Sodom. And none of us is in a better place before God without Christ than any resident of Sodom. And so we too are called to throw ourselves upon divine mercy, knowing that Christ has lived the perfectly righteous life in our place and he himself has taken the punishment that we deserve for failing to love God and neighbor perfectly. Because of Christ, God is both merciful, perfectly merciful, and just, perfectly just. Every single sin we've ever committed will be called to account. That's not a question. The question is whether the fire that that sin calls down will consume us or if it consumed Christ all of those years ago on the cross. This is the mercy of God. This is the righteousness of God. We receive this mercy and this righteousness by repentance and faith. And there is no better or sweeter news. And there is no better or sweeter news for community. Again, each person that has been sent to us has been sent to us directly by God, 
Receive and welcome them as such. Welcome the neighbor that God has sent to you because of the righteous one that God has sent for you. The disciples are no better off than the Samaritans, and we are no better off than any person that we encounter. To recall a quote by Bilbro, we can identify ourselves by the media we consume. Are you a Fox News watcher, an NPR listener, a New Yorker reader? If these are our primary identities, like James and like John, we will call destruction upon the other. But if our identity, our primary identity, is in Christ, we will realize that we ourselves deserve destruction. But another and the greatest of all acts of love has taken that destruction in our place. What's wrong with the world? Well, it's not the Samaritans, it's not this party, it's not this particular group of people. If that were the case, then Christ would not have rebuked James and John. In fact, if that was the case, then Christ would never have come at all. Rather, he just would have called down fire upon that particular group of people, and that would have been the end. And if that were the case, then the cross itself makes no sense. And so any identity that gets traction by seeking to call fire down upon the social or political other is one that undercuts Jesus' whole mission. Jesus calls us to diverse communities, not to swarms. So in closing, let's think about our own life. What tends to make us smug? How are we tempted to rank people? What do we tend to do in our own minds to boost ourselves over others? Do we look to politics, to education, to status, to wealth, to cultural sophistication? Who do you think should be consumed by fire instead of you? How are you training yourself to see the world? Are you seeing each neighbor as someone sent to you personally by God? Do you see yourself as one who deserves divine wrath but has received God's limitless mercy? After this church service, you will spend more than 160 hours doing different things before you are back in church again. That's a long time. And the aim of this service, first and foremost, is to raise your eyes to Christ. And your responsibility over the next 160 hours is to keep your gaze on him. And so I invite you to practice something this week. Each time you think about or meet another person, also look to the cross. When you look to the glory-hogging boss, the less-than-industrious co-worker, the child throwing a tantrum on the floor, the spouse who is always running late or breaking the family budget, the person who ignores or dismisses you, the political figure that you simply cannot stand, look at them, but also look at the cross. Even more, when you look at yourself at all of the ways that you struggle, and all the messes that you put yourself in, and all the ways you fail to stack up to the expectations of others, and even your own expectations, when you look at all the ways you act like you have it together, but really you don't, 
Look at those things. Look at those things squarely. But also look at the cross. Look at the cross and see your sin. Look at the cross and see the consuming fire of God's wrath taken for you. Look to the cross and see the beauty of perfect righteousness. Look to the cross and see the beauty of perfect mercy. Look to the cross and see the one righteous person that God has sent for you. The one righteous person who can save a city. The one righteous person who can save you. Look to the cross and know that you have been made righteous with the very same righteousness that was credited both to Abraham and to the Ninevites. The righteousness of Christ. Look to the cross and welcome as you yourself have been welcomed. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you that you have sent Christ for us, that he has taken the destruction that we deserve. We thank you, Father, for the way that Christ shows us both the deep, deep depths of your mercy and the unscalable heights of your righteousness and brings them together on the cross. And because you have welcomed us in Jesus Christ, help us to welcome others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.